And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News. And uh, hold on, there's a voice I just heard. Is 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 that you, Pete? Just having technical issues here, Matt. No, no, not really. I'm just joking. I'm here. Wait, Mate, you are. It's what's been going been on? Long... Well, I would say it's been a long, long time since I've spoken to you, but it hasn't been a long, long time since I've spoken to you. It's just been a long, long time since anyone else has heard you, I think. Yes, spoken a lot, not heard. Yeah, so, but uh, as always, yeah, we're not going to go into it, but uh, we do plan to try and make it a little bit more regular, but certainly thank you once again for all of your feedback and uh, interest in why we haven't recorded and uh, saying that you do want to hear us. And uh, speaking of people that like to hear us, so we get a lot of feedback from brewers who say that they like to listen to Radio Brews News uh, during the early morning mash-in, and uh, apparently it's a good part of their brewing day. Uh, but when you're mashing in, I hope you're mashing in with Cry Malt because Cry Malt is uh, one of the businesses that makes Radio Brews News possible. David Cryer, a great supporter of beer generally, um, a man who believes that the rising tide lifts all boats, um, to coin a phrase. And uh, he he is a fellow that likes what we do. And uh, so thank you very much to Cry Malt for making this happen. And uh, if you're a man who needs, or a man or woman who needs malt, um, Cry Malt is the place to get your malt. Prof, uh, mate, very quickly, we'd, we're going to try and keep this uh, tight and uh, you know really pump it out before we go into our interview. Um, tell us a little bit about your 2014. Yeah, very busy year this year, Matt. Uh, as most people will know who are my either Facebook followers or have um, bumped into me over a beer, uh, two years in the planning, we had a bit of a, a family trip for two months to uh, England and France and Germany and Belgium. Um, great opportunity, uh, my first time overseas, um, apart from a couple of weeks in uh, in the States uh, doing barbecue um, a couple of years back. But this was, it was a good opportunity to take the family, but also to, I guess, immerse myself in the in the, the beer culture, and, and you and I have spoken often uh, in this forum about how sadly in this country we seem to have a, um, a culture of drinking rather than a drinking culture. Um, and that was, I think, the thing that was most obvious to me was the ability to you know, be able to pop onto the, the train um, and then you know, grab, while you're buying your ticket, grab a couple of um, half litres of very nice Munich Hellas uh, or a Hefeweizen, and um, nobody's being silly about it. Everyone's sort of taking it responsibly. We we spent some time in a, a park in Köln, and the girls were splashing around this in a sort of public water feature. And, you know, behind me, there's a couple of guys, you know, just drinking a couple of bottles of Heineken, and then down the road, somebody else is drinking some Kölsch. Um, and everyone's just enjoying themselves, and it's just, it's not frowned upon. It's not, um, nobody gets the dickhead boots on and all that sort of thing. So uh, it was a good trip. Oh, yeah, I noticed the same thing. Nothing nicer than catching one of the fast trains between uh, two cities and being able to enjoy a beer or even have one on the platform before you uh, catch the train and public drinking, you know, able to sort of drink in the park or drink in the street without it. Uh, that said, I did notice a couple of, there were a couple of, I think they were English tourists um, who uh, Spanish, got Spanish off the, uh, oh, are they? Oh, but they got off the uh, train with the um, wobbly boot on. And, uh, but it, it, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't over the top. And it is a really sad part of Australian culture where we seem to celebrate the hangover as opposed to the, um, and I hesitate to say drinking because that sounds like drinking to excess, um, 
but, but yeah, had, had, a great, had a great night last night. Enjoyed a couple. Had a beer I hadn't had before, and 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 talk about it rather than, geez, I feel rat-assed and completely uh, hung over this morning because I got utterly munted last night. And and that is, it, you put your finger on it, man. There, prof. You know, we we don't celebrate the process or the the flavour or the the trend. We you know, it, it's all about Occasion, the yeah. after effects. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Well, in in the Australian culture, and that's something that. I'd actually uh, had slated for one of our upcoming stories and uh, doing a little bit of a piece on, you know, drinking because there's a lot of talk about what is healthy drinking um, or, you know, uh, industry campaigns around drinking. But it seems to be about, you know, trying to curb the extreme end of drinking. You know, the guys that, you know, it's about glassings, it's about street violence, but it's never about, you know, how much is too much. And I personally think that generally... um, too much is, you know, much lower than people think. It's, you know, the, the, the right place to stop isn't the point at which you are, are about to glass somebody or get involved in a street fight. But, you know, I, I, if you've got a hangover, you've probably gone too far. Um, but anyway, that's a, I won't get on that soapbox today. I think it'll be an interesting story for, for later. Yeah. But you've also had a very busy year uh, on the... Can we say that you're a uh, you know a, a carny folk? You've been a professional <laughs> on the you've been a professional on the uh, beer festival circuit. Yeah, the nationwide tour has done well. We've uh, yeah, well, of course, worked um, very closely with your good self at the Echo um, uh, when I got back from overseas, so back in August, um, which I, which I'll count in amongst uh, you know my beer festival experiences for the year, which was which was really good. Um, but you had the Cooper's Craft Beer College at uh, Gabs. At Gabs before, yeah, just before I went away, and then um, and a couple of other events during Good Beer Week. We've had Ballarat Beer Festival and the Geelong Beer Festival, where we did some education uh, seminars, which are really becoming popular. It's great, um, and I don't take credit for this. I think the public generally is wanting more than just to walk around and try a few different beers and catch up with their mates and listen to some tunes and. Um, get the kids face painted and whatever it might be. There's this uh, growing trend towards ah, there's an opportunity to go and listen to five of the brewers that uh, whose beers I've uh, never heard of or enjoy frequently. Um, having a bit of a chat be great to uh, you know an opportunity to ask some questions and that sort of thing, or to see um, whether it's a celebrity chef or a you know a, a, a cook who works uh, primarily with or around or matching beer. To their, to their dishes uh, and to try beer and cheese or to, I mean, Kiralee Waldhorn, the beer diva, and I have done some wonderful work using um, blindfolds and Ziploc bags, uh, which, which we might have to go into a bit more detail. If you haven't been, it's, it's a bit hard to, to kind of explain it, you know, and, and uh, what happens in he says, she says, uh, you know, kind of stays in he says, she says. But those sort of sessions are becoming more and more popular too. Yeah, that's one of the great things that I've noticed. The number of um, chefs that are making a you know an interest out of beer and food. And you know, when I started um, doing beer tastings and uh, you know beer lunches, um, oh, just almost ten years ago now. Um, and you would rock up at a restaurant and say, "Hey, I would love to do a beer dinner here." And you just see the eyes glaze over, thinking that you're going to pull out five lagers and there's nothing that you can match with it, and you're just going to do you know pies and pizza. Um, and it was a really hard sell that uh, beer was worth matching to a restaurant. And that's really changed. And the fact that that's becoming part of the education circuit is even better. So that, that's a great, uh, great trend. Yeah, exactly. Mate, um, we, we might have a little bit of a chat. Oop, that tone, that's the news 
the breaking news tone. Oh, sorry, you're going to edit something in? Yeah, I'll edit something in there. So yeah, right. <laughs> so we can. You're, you're not going to get okay. much better than that for, for, for the price. <laughs> I'll just let you know now. Mate, received an email just before Christmas. Um, VAMI, the Victorian Association of Microbrewers, has launched its website, www.handcraftedlocalbeer. Sorry, handcraftedlocal.beer to help drinkers buy local and support independent craft breweries. Um, they say that with the explosion of new breweries, new brands and the ever-expanding range of quality beers, um, driven by a growing base of consumers with a thirst for something different, they feel the need to um, you know, put a, a mark on their, their bottles that say that this is made by the people whose names are on the bottle, You know, in, in terms of not contract brewed, not... Um, you know, it's, it's not just a marketing brand. It is actually a brewery with a brewer who, uh, you know, stands in their own brewery uh, and, and sells the beer. Um, no slight against uh, craft, uh, contract brewing, as we know. We've got one of our no, great no sponsors is a contract brewing. But I, I, I think that it's as, um, you know, the market develops and as I said, with uh, more and more brands, it becomes very hard to choose the beer that you like. And with crowded shelves with beers that are very similar um, in flavour, something needs to set them apart. It can be a name, it can be a logo, it can be uh, the fact that it comes from a little regional brewery and you want a little bit of that uh, you know, in, in captured in the bottle um, as you drink it in Brisbane or Perth or Darwin or wherever you are. And uh, I think that's a great um, and a very positive uh, step that they've taken. Yeah, it's an interesting one and one that's been discussed uh, on and off for quite a few years now. And I guess it was probably around the mid-2000s when, uh, basically, I guess, when micro-slash-boutique-slash-craft breweries began to double into number into double figures, number into double figures. Um, it was discussed, well, hang on, there's a difference between my beer and your beer, even though the labels look you know, apparently the same. And, you know, I own my kit and you get yours made by somebody else, we need something to, to differentiate. And there's been sort of lots of argument, I guess, over the, the value of it. Um, and I think there's probably two sides to the story. And one is how the industry, how, how we as the, the craft beer community look at it, uh, which is probably less relevant than how the end consumer looks at it. And if, it's a, if it helps a consumer to make a decision, then that's good. I don't know necessarily that... For example, I love, uh, unless you've been Kraus from Bridge Road Brewers, is a, is a great example of somebody who has championed this. Um, I love Ben's beers. Do I love them any less because he hasn't actually made them himself because, you know, he's uh, been out at a beer festival or uh, been out of the brewery or he's been overseas or whatever. His beer keeps, still keeps getting made. It's being made by one of his underlings or his apprentice or his assistant brewer or whatever it might be. Is that any different to Mountain Goat's beers being brewed by Dermot O'Donnell? And I'd, I'd drink anything that Dermot O'Donnell had a hand in brewing because I think he's a, a genius brewer in terms of that old school uh, science and art kind of balance. Um, is there a difference? Uh, that wasn't a rhetorical question, I take it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm yin well, no, to your yang. Yeah, well, no, that's um, that's uh, a really good point. Um, but I, I guess for me, um, if you like the beer, it doesn't change the quality of the beer. Um, but we, we know that flavour comes from a whole range of things. And you know, if you drink a, a wine in a winery, having gone through the whole thing, often it'll taste better than if you just pick it up um, at a you know a, oh, of 
um, un uncles, dans. Yes. Um, you know, if you buy an apple from a farmer's market, an apple from the same farmer can taste different if you pick it up at the farmer's market than if you buy it at uh, you know Woolworths. But and, and that's just the way that we work. And I guess the great thing about this genuine handcrafted beer is that if it does matter to you, um, it's a way that you can pick it up and find out. Because at the moment, uh, there, there are no uh, you know marks. For, for how you can pick it up, and uh, you know, you, you look at you, you mentioned um, right, Dermot O'Donnell, who's now brewing. Have a label, they do have if a you, label. If you want it to, does... you could put something on your label. Well, you and uh, that's one of the campaigns that uh, Australian <laughs> Brewers use is uh, lodge. But then again, you look at what's on the label. You know, say pick three beers. Um, you mentioned Dermot O'Donnell, who's brewing for Cricketers Arms these days uh, at the Asahi Brewery um, in Laverton in Victoria. Cricketers Arms comes out of there. Mountain Goats packaged stuff comes out of there. And so does the Coles Steamrail brand. You pick up the Coles Steamrail brand, doesn't say anything uh, about it. You walk into First Choice to, to buy it, and they'll tell you that it comes from the same brewery that makes Mountain Goat. And in the market, there is a you know an, an equivalence. And you know, Coles wants to make their beer seem equivalent to uh, uh, Mountain Goat. And when Mountain Goat doesn't, Tell you that their beers are, um, you know, made at, at an Asahi-owned brewery. They make it possible to do that. It doesn't affect the quality of the beer, but I think that for the percentage of consumers that do care, um, you know, it 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 it, it matters deeply to them. And uh, when you don't do it, then you get to the you know the the lowest form of it, which for me was the um, Byron Bay Lager, where you actually had Foster's contract brewing or Foster's. Uh, licensing the beer, yeah, and doing, uh, doing everything except being in Byron Bay. Yeah, exactly. And look, um, I'm reading a fantastic book at the moment that I can highly recommend. It's actually about wine and the wine industry, but it's called Wine Wars, and it's by a wine economist. Uh, and it's subtitled "The Curse, the, the Curse of the Blue Nun, the Miracle of the Two Buck Chuck, and the Revenge of the Terroirists." Um, and it's you know all looking at how the wine industry has been shaped and constantly evolves um, with supermarkets getting into winemaking and how that has broadened the appeal of wine. But it also has meant that some of the higher-end wineries have uh, have struggled. But it's also seen an overall increase in the quality of wine because the supermarkets are a badge of quality. It may make it the, the wines fairly generic. It may make them a little bit anodyne and not give them a sense of place. But at the same time, uh, you know, it, it's it's made the wine industry uh, in, in a lot of ways much uh, better quality. But it's also created the people, you know, a, a market for people who are looking for a point of difference um, and are looking for a wine that comes from a place that's got a real sense of identity. Um, it, it, it's created a stronger market for them. So it's a multi-layered uh, market. You, you know, it, it's fantastic for Mountain Goat that their contracting arrangements has seen them grow so strongly. Um, it's fantastic for the beer drinker because their beers are able to get out nationwide. Um, I, I think Mountain Goat's beers are much more consistent than they may have been earlier. Um, but put it, I, I just say put it on the label, let everyone know, and that way we can make a choice based on you know in, information rather than uh, lack of it. Yeah, and look, I'm all for um, giving the consumer as much information um, as, as possible, and then so, leave, yeah. leave it up to them. I guess it's a, it's that old thing of you know, the, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? You know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is actually a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> yes. 
So I think if we if we if we give people the tools, uh, it, it, yeah, it, they're then better prepared to, I guess, make a, a decision based on why they want to drink what they want to drink. Yep, and I mean the number of people that don't care is just astronomical. But I think deep in their heart, you know, um, the, the the guys that aren't putting their putting the information on the label, I think they know deep in their heart that, or or at least they fear um, that it may damage their brand telling the truth. That's you know, um, and if if they're worried about it, then as Ben Krause would say, if if you if if no one cares, it doesn't matter that's on the label. If you think no one cares, put it on the label, and that that way you can't be accused of. Uh, you know, pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. But, well, uh, perhaps, but I don't think... perhaps at the end of the day, the, uh, that, that rising tide that floats all boats will um, will sink some of the ones that, that, that perhaps aren't as seaworthy as the others. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, the market forces. Exactly. Um, so anyway, hey, and you, that's mentioned, also... you mentioned cricketers' arms. I did. Please. Nice segue I... there, there. Yeah, almost as good as your segue into the ad that wasn't an ad for Cryer Malt, which I thought was really, <laughs> really beautiful. That, the whole that of course, thing. was an ad. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. that um, no, well, one of those supporters rather than an advertiser. Yeah, Cricketers Arms. I hear you were down in Melbourne. And we oh, didn't get to catch up. It was a flying visit. Yeah. Um, but Cricketers Arms has launched uh, into summer with a new product and a refreshing brand. So they've a uh, new look to the uh, to, to the bottles and uh, they've launched their range, Spearhead Pale Ale, Keeper's Lager, Journeyman Mid and Captain's IPA. Um, look, I you know, I have to say that each of the beers, uh, you know, really solid quality. I, I would equate them, if you've ever tried uh, uh, Gage Roads, um, with, uh, the West Australian pioneering craft brewery, um, very much on a par with that, as you would expect. You know, very solid, um, very middle of the range in terms of flavours, yep. balance, um, very clean, uh, which, talking about that, that wine thing, you know, may, maybe they don't have the personality, they don't have the... Um, some of the soulfulness uh, of uh, some of the small regional craft beers, but I'll tell you what, highly drinkable. They definitely have flavour and a really positive trend in, in Australian craft beer. And I think marketing being at what it what it is, and you know, label and brand uh, recognition, I think they're going to uh, do quite well with that uh, w- w- with them. Have you tried them, Prof? Uh, I have very well made. Is um, I think aimed at a at a price point, aimed at getting them to out into market under in a certain price point, so that they're in between, uh, say the mainstream or the Coopers, but uh, and and so above them, but below uh, the like you say the small smaller independent uh, or artisan craft beers that are available uh, outside of specialty retailers. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I had them uh, just after they were launched at a, a fluid festival um, out at uh, Lilydale, just at, at a, a big ALH hotel who um, arranged a, a, a bit of a festival with 20-odd brewers. And so I got to speak to the marketing guys, the sales guys. And look, to be honest, I couldn't I, – I, I got a, a, a cup of the, the pale and the IPA, and by the time I got them back to my tent – and shared them with the guys who I was with. I, I honestly couldn't tell which one was which. There, there just there wasn't a great difference in the um, in the IPA ness of the IPA. But I, 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 no, I'm very drinkable. But, the, but look, you know, without hijacking the conversation, without opening another can of worms, uh, maybe the captain's IPA would be best described as a session IPA. <laughs> 
an, an IPA, improperly uh, produced ale. Well, I wouldn't say improperly produced. No, but, but it, I'm it, trying to think of a way of saying uh, it's, a, it, it, it's, you know, a, a, an out-of-balance pale ale. It, it wasn't uh, particularly IPA-ish. Well, actually, and, and that's where it wouldn't be a, a session IPA because it wasn't out of balance. It was very nicely balanced. It was probably, <laughs> if you think of this spearhead pale ale, is at the lower end, um, you know, down maybe towards the golden ale in the end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, yeah. The captain's IPA is probably at the higher end of the uh, American style pale ale spectrum. Um, but yeah, distinctly, in if feral hop hog often gets accused of being a, um, you know, not being a an IPA and being an American pale ale, then you know, Captain's IPA is definitely well in the uh, American pale ale um, you know, spectrum. Um, but look, that, that, that's okay. Uh, you know, it, look to each his own. I, and as I say, well-made beers tasted quite nice, um, good for what they are. Exactly. I, I think, yeah, I, and I think they might be a little bit ambitious calling it an IPA, as we said. And I think longer term. Um, that does tend to distort the uh, you know what an IPA is, um, but then, then again, you know, you know my thoughts on session IPAs and uh, what they are. So I'm I'm certainly not going to quibble about Cricketers Arms calling their beer an IPA if the, if that's the sort of IPA that people want to drink, then yeah, and, it'll and, find a market. And look at the risk of, of turning this episode into radio wine news. Um, but getting back to your another wine analogy, if you want to drink French wine. Uh, you have to know, like, okay, so that region, that winery produces this style of, of wine. Australia is quite unique in um, in the last twenty odd years of, of developing uh, the new world. Yeah, the new yeah. The new world. So calling it, you know, calling a Shiraz a Shiraz or a Cabernet Sauvignon or whatever it might be. Whereas, as I say, we noticed this when we we're in Europe. You, you've got, oh, hang on, what, uh, this is from a region. Excuse me, mate. What's it? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah, you know, it's Trayvon. Okay, well, that doesn't help me in terms of will, am I going to like it? So maybe with beer, you know, we it, it's not a bad thing to muddle up the uh, the styles a little bit. Uh, maybe we'll start getting, you know, Rubber Glen Ales or, you know, Beechworth style bitters or something like that. And then oh, and you, you've just got to know yeah. the brewery. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, look, Doesn't seem to have hurt the French wine industry. Or has it? I don't know. No, and, and that's where this, uh, mate, I'd, I'll uh, flick you a copy of this um, Wine Wars book because it talks a lot about those sorts of things and how there is a lot of pressure, you know, uh, whilst the, the, the French wine um, industry has been you know, revered around the world for its quality, you know, most of the wine that was uh, being consumed in places like France and in Italy were peasant wines that were, you know, a dollar, two dollars a bottle or one or two euros a bottle um, and they were peasant fair essentially and there was a very small part of the industry that was the fine wine um, and it was the cheap Australian New Zealand and American wines that have really forced those lower end wines to improve um, but you know I, I still think that styles when you have an identified style like an IPA um, it needs to mean something in terms of uh, at least specification um, because yeah. otherwise you do start to see a um, you know a, a race to the bottom of the hill um, in terms of styles and I, from my understanding of IPA history um, that's one of the things that happened um, once they fell out of style and people were going and you know, English IPAs tended to be very very lightly hopped very uh, you know low alcohol before the American craft brewers discovered the history and the hop profile and really resurrected it um, 
So, you know, mm. look, I, I, I think it's important that style means something. Um, yeah. Calling it is, but it, again, I think the market will sort itself out in terms of we're going to, people are going to put the internet turned on, they can go and find out uh, what this IPA stands for, what it should mean. Uh, they get a bit of an idea, they find one that they like. If they think I'll buy another one that's also called an IPA that doesn't hit the same marks, they're going to go, okay, I'm going to go back to the first one. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it, it, good point. But uh, you know, <laughs> I think IPA means something, East Coast, West Coast, New, New World, you know, XPA, you know, Session IPA, that's where, where it gets into the aficionado rank. Yeah, yep, exactly. Um, what else? Next story, uh, Crown Ambassador Reserve, the uh, ah. flagship um, premium beer from Foster's. It was due for release around the spring racing carnival, around Melbourne Cup. Um, for some reason, it seems to have only been released in December, just in time for Christmas. So uh, I've got a podcast, a, a fairly long podcast, that will uh, spread over two editions with the uh, team from Crown, just catching up on Crown Golden Ale, Crown Ambassador, and uh, I, I got to have a pre-release tasting um, of it back in October. So, um, yeah, and at, at that stage, I was planning on, on releasing it in November. No, 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 it wasn't. It was still in the bottle. It's still a beautifully packaged uh, bottle. And uh, look, it's still on tap. At, at, is Crown Lager still on tap? Crown Lager is still on tap. Um, yeah, it, it is on tap. And uh, look, I, I'm considering my uh, background in with Crown Lager. Uh, I, I have to say that. You know, I, I, I'm very, very not anti-Crown these days. You know, it, it's not it, it's not the beer that I would go to. Um, but when you see it poured, they're doing a lot of good things. Um, and did you did you miss being on the invite list? Not being. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> no, we, we, yeah, there was a bit. Of... You said it didn't matter. You said no. Well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But now all of a sudden, no, Crown's good. Oh, 2014 was the year of uh, Foster's and I kissing and making up, um, which it was, was good. the year uh, of the bridge building. It was a year of uh, yes, yes, um, some. That's, uh, that's year of infrastructure. It was, but uh, but not not for any reason apart from uh, they seem to be making some you know genuine attempts to Im improve the quality and really look at some of the things that I, I was critical of, and you know even if it's not a beer that I choose to drink my my passion is beer and getting you know making sure that there is um you know a vibrant and interesting beer industry um which is good for everybody and when crown lager went back to being an all malt kettle hopped uh beer um and they really put a lot of effort into the way that they did do the pouring um on, on tap and uh you know I, there's actually a really interesting story that we uh, should probably follow up looking at the, the whole story of, about the taps that they selected and how they were designed to give the perfect pour for for CUB um, or for for Crown Lager. Um, look, I, I think good on them, and uh, you know I, I'm quite happy to uh, to give them big thumbs up uh, for what they're for what they're trying to do. We, we should probably quickly talk about the year in review. We, we, we should. We've been going a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just looking looking back, looking forward. Uh, did you notice uh, any notable trends this year? I think I'm probably going to go with having just a little bit of thought about it. Um, the lager is not a dirty word. I think and I hope that 2015 will see a continuation of the trend that I, I suspect is, is gaining a little bit of groundswell, which is um, the uh, brewers wanting to make pilsners and lagers that are uh, 
beautifully balanced and interesting uh, in their subtlety with a little bit of aroma and a little bit of uh, hop character perhaps. Um, Keller beers, uh, Schwarz beers, uh, all those sorts of things. Maybe that'll continue. Don't know. Yeah, actually, well, I've, I've, had, some very, I thinking... I've had some very good craft lagers this year. That's all, you know. When I, I was I thinking, I won't name any, uh, lest I leave one or two out. Uh, when, when I was thinking of uh, what this what this trend was, I didn't actually identify lagers, although that is a subset of the broader trend I noticed, and that was just the uh, sessional, the the I hate the word sessional, um, and approachable is not really what I'm looking at. It's more the um, you know, it was the year of balance where, you know, maybe some of the rough edges, some of the extreme unbalanced characters of beer were, um, you know, brewers were going for a broader market. Um, and it's craft lagers is one. Um, and I will identify, I think, the, the beer that really stands out in my mind, I won't say it was the best, but it was the one I really um, poured and thought, wow, this isn't, uh, this is a bloody good beer. It was the Barrow Boys um, lager, yep. Yep. Um, which really impressed me. But, you look at the golden ales, the summer ales, the uh, you know cultures. Um, that's the style that brewers are starting to realise that uh, they need beers that they sell a lot of. And you know, most breweries are coming out with uh, you know, flag flagship beers or at least uh, beers that have really nicely balanced, um, but still hopefully characterful. Uh, you know, beers in that very uh, sessional style, and incidentally, they're the beers that I've been really um, finding myself drinking this year. Yeah, very much. So, uh, mate, big call, um, big call. This one, did you have a best brewery or beer of the year? No, and no. And I'm just going to stick with uh, it's tried and true, and maybe it's getting a bit boring. But the best beer is the one in your hand. I've, I've, I've had everything from. Brewery Fresh Carlton Draft through to, you know, limited release, seasonal, um, you know, Belgian triples and Christmas ales and all that sort of thing. I really can't, I, I've thought long and hard about this and no, I can't, I can't pick a beer or even a style that I would say is, you know, that, that I would put, categorise as best. No, so, sorry. look, I'm going to try and knock you off the fence sorry, here. Sorry, sorry to you, soft you, on that and yeah, I'll pull you, you, it out you, of my ass later on, but. <laughs> well and truly got a foot on either side, but just not not necessarily the best overall or anything. Was there a standout, something that you really took note? And I'll uh, put, you know, I'll make a call. Um, La Seren, um Costa Nikias um, and La Seren Brewery really wowed me with um, their beers. They're finally available in bottle. They've finally, I've tried them in uh, Sydney, in Melbourne a few times, and they impressed me. They finally made their way into bottle. The, ran, the, the range has expanded, but for um, Belgian-style beers, and, and, and that, that's one of my favourite styles, you know, French-Belgian beers, you know, um, the Belgian sessionable beers, uh, you know, Belgian blonde, um, you know, uh, Belgian brune, those styles. Um, and he's really come out with a really interesting range of saisons and farmhouse reds and uh, just very... Interesting and complex, but still very clean and very well made. Um, beautiful packaging, you know, everything about it. So uh, really a real standout for me this year. Yeah. No, no, no. I, and I, I can't goad you, you out of your uh, cave there, Prof? Nope. Splinter ass out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, there's probably no, uh, no way uh, I'll be able to get you to answer this one. Did you have a most interesting beer person of the year? 
again, no, because I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm I'm very I'm blessed. I'm absolutely 100% the luckiest man in the world. I've done uh, training courses this year. I've done corporate stuff, and I've done uh, public, um, you know, beer festival bits and pieces. So I, I'm very lucky in that I get to meet and share beer with a lot of a lot of different people. Uh, the number of brewers that I've met for the first time this year and um, whose work I was familiar with and uh, or not, really, really great people, but I don't want to, yeah, I can't, I can't uh, pick one at the expense of the others. Okay, again, you know, it's by calling one person the most interesting person, it's really just the person that was most, I mean, memorable is not even the word, but yeah, there was just something interesting or intriguing that made them stand out. And I'm going to go for our uh, interview guest that we'll be introducing very shortly, uh, John Hall from All About Beer magazine in in the US. We caught up with him in Auckland, uh, sorry, in um, Wellington, Wellington Wellington for uh, Beervana. We had a bit of a chat, or we had quite a long chat and a couple of beers with him um, that was nominally about, uh, you know, if beer was discovered today or beer was invented today, how would it look? Um, and you'll hear that very soon. But he was, you know, a, a, just a really interesting guy to sit and have a beer with. I'd had, maybe it was because I had no expectations. I'd not, uh, he'd not really come across my radar before I met him. But um, he's the editor of All About Beer magazine, which I do know very well, um, which I think is probably the leading beer uh, magazine in the world. Um, it has real journalism, Um that, that comes to it, and it's not just a flag waving, uh, you know, cheer squad for for beer. Everything is rosy. It looks deeply, in a very balanced way, um, at beer issues. And uh, John is a former New York Times journalist who managed to, you know, like like a couple of us, um, pursue his love of beer um, and has turned it into a career. And he's ended up uh, editing uh, all about beer magazine and a really really nice guy not come across him before i'd not read any of his blogs over the years um but a really fascinating guy and a a really nice guy to have a beer with it was a very fun couple of hours and and some of a very small portion of which was spent talking about beer and a lot of a lot of other stuff besides which was great and you'll be able to hear a little bit of it um uh listeners uh very very shortly I've edited it out, so we're just talking because it did take place back in August at uh, Beervana. Um, some of it's a little bit dated, so I've cut off the first bit uh, where we just have a general chat with John, and that part of the sound was also pretty ordinary. So rather than distract you, I've just kept it to the discussion about what if beer was discovered today. But I might put uh, the introduction so you can just hear a little bit about uh, John and it, just his career and his uh, just discussion about Wellington and Beervana and you know, beers generally. Um, just up as a little bit of bonus content that won't come through your podcast stream. You'll have to go to the website to, uh, to listen to it. But uh, it, it, it was quite interesting. Apologies in advance for the sound. Um, Prof, one thing, I don't think we've really had a rant today. We've had a bit of a discussion of issues, but is there something that you wanted to rant about or something that needs to be addressed or just something you'd think, gee, I wish that little part of, uh, you know, the beer industry or the beer culture or, you know, beer in general would just, uh, fall off the perch? Uh, yeah, look, just, I guess it's probably more a, a very general sort of thing and it's probably come to me because, because of beer but it's not necessarily restricted to beer. And that is, people, please, think before you press post or tweet or send. 
I'm just finding uh, more and more that you know somebody will make a comment, and everyone else feels that they've got to come in and either fly the flag or, or shit can the previous comment. Sometimes people are going to say dumb things. Let them let them say dumb things. You don't, we don't have to, you know. So that that's my thing. It's just like, yeah, you know, is it really worth you know even responding to to that comment or? But then particularly when it's you know this is a shit beer. Well, you know what? Maybe you got a shit palate, or maybe the maybe that beer just doesn't suit your palate. Um, if you've got a you know a gusher or a, a you know a stale or an oxidised beer, okay, that's you know that's fair enough. But take it up with the brewer first. Um, but yeah, but just the whole yeah, yeah that, that that's it for me. Okay, I did. The one thing I'd really like to see change, and it, it won't happen in 2015, um, but hopefully we will gradually see it change, is better beer glasses um, in in bars that have pretenses to be beer bars. Um, you know, the, I, I guess the worst example I saw was this horrific trend of the mason jar. Uh, you know, my, my girls love getting uh, fruit juices and things in mason jars. Cool, they're drinking it through a straw anyway. But no, beer, never. But even going beyond that, um, you know, the, the, the old school pot glass or the old school pint glass uh, or the schooner glass, they weren't designed for anything other than not breaking. They were designed to, that some poor glass, he could stack them 15 high as he wa- walked his way through the crowd. They wouldn't chip, they wouldn't break, but they do not. And, and it was also at a time when beer had very little character. The best thing about beer was its temperature. So they do nothing to showcase aroma or flavour, um, and let's get rid of them. You know, there, there are so many good uh, good glasses um, available that you don't need to. You know, one, one of the things publicans say is, well, we need glasses that won't break um, and uh, you know uh, can be used for everything, and and that, that's true. But you know, if you're going to put good beer in in, in uh, to your venue, make sure people can taste it, or, or you having a glass that makes the experience, um, you know, commensurate with the quality of the beer. And uh, yep. so, uh, yeah, and look, it, it, you don't have to put uh, Spiegelau in. You don't have to put, you know... It, Although you could. You, you, look, you, you could, um, and I've spoken to a couple of venues that have tried it, um, and they're, look, they're not really designed for um, bar use. You might be able to get away with it at restaurants. Um, actually, the most common comment I've heard from uh, venues is that it's not actually the... Um, patrons in in restaurants it's the staff in restaurants because they're so used to handling glasses beer glasses roughly that most of them are getting smashed being put into the trays for the washing machine you know for, for the, for yeah, the clear washer the washing machine. Um, yeah. and that's obviously yeah. a staff training issue but you know Spiegelau are beautiful um, and it's one of my favorite uh, sort of glass ranges because they are so nice maybe not perfect for uh, you know high traffic environments but certainly the pot glass does nothing to improve your beer um, and uh, yeah, and anyway, actually, it's a bit of a side um, right for that. The, the, the Spiegel out YPA glass. Could we? The camera. What's that? <laughs> Can we consign that to? What were they thinking? Oh well, if you look at Instagram, it seems to be you know it seems to be the only glass that anyone drinks from anymore. Um, can we can we blow the lid off this right right here and now and, and just and, and just point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes? Sure. But that beer, for all its loveliness and all its design and, and all its collaboration and all that sort of thing, was originally for white wine. 
It was originally a wine I, glass. Yes, I or no? believe it was slight. It, it's almost identical to one. It's slightly yeah. changed, um, and they've obviously got the capacity yeah. to, to to do it. But it was one that's been repurposed. It is a triumph of marketing. They, you know, the the stem Pilsner glass, which is one of my favourite uh, glasses, is beautiful in the hand. The IPA glass is just so impractical in so many reasons. Um, it's easy to knock over because of the narrow base. It feels odd, and I don't think it actually delivers it. I did a, a blind tasting, or a, a, I did a tasting experiment at one of my classes this year, where everyone got an IPA, an IPA glass, everyone got a stout glass, um, and the IPAs, almost without exception, were voted as tasting better in the stout glass um, than the IPA glass. Now that that was a sampling of about 15, 20 people. But it was a pretty comprehensive um, result in, in the end. So I, I think it's, yeah. Um, if you enjoy drinking your beer from it and feeling that you, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, use it. But it's... Uh, look, I have nothing against it personally. It graces the cover of the third edition of the Critics' Choice Australia's Best Beers when it first came out. And it's a great looking glass, like you say. And it's the story Do you think, of, well, see, I, I, I actually you know, did say... Collaborators. I, pretty, I think it's a pretty odd... It, I've heard it described as looking akin to uh, an adult. Yes, or, or his or her's pleasure. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I'm, I'm a stemmed Pilsner fan. I must admit because I think it's the best all rounder. Yep. I think I think a range of beers tastes just as good out of that. Uh, as many of them do out of the glass that's designed specifically for them. Actually, one of my favourite glasses is the Spiegelau, uh, I, I think it's the Bordeaux glass, um, what, just one of their wine glasses, but it's big enough to fit a 330ml um, stubby um, with a, a good layer of foam and still having headspace, and I just think it's a beautiful drink. And it, it, actually, if I can just just take a minute to sort of talk about uh, this because it's one of those interesting things that um, I've noticed and from memory it comes up in the interview with John I can't I, it might have been the early part that I've edited out so you'll need to listen to it in the bonus content listeners but this year when I've done a lot of corporate tastings and these days if you're doing you know law firms or professional firms you know very even gender balance as many men and women and there is still a reluctance for women um, to to come to beer, and they will walk into a, something that's nominated as a beer or cheese tasting, and they'll ask for a glass of wine, and I'll laugh, you know, come on, just humour me, just try it. And I found that you, you know, uh, women that have that perception will not pick up a pot glass of beer, let alone a pint glass of beer. And venues that want to try and do corporate tastings, serving a pint of beer. Um, you're just alienating half the group. And, you know, I think I get myself into trouble with the discussion with John about talking about how, you know, it's women's hand sizes or whatever, which may get me into all sorts of trouble and being sexist. But it's, I've noticed, of, you know, that it's almost impossible to get professional women to, to drink a pint of beer. Um, because it's hey, maybe maybe I'm sizest as well, but I'm not a fan of pints. No, and it's just so inelegant. It feel you know, you've just got this you've got this enormous weight in your hand even before the glass is empty, uh, is full, and then you add the, the weight. It's unattractive. But I've I've then gone and having seen, you know, these professional, and actually even the blokes on a weeknight don't want to drink a pint of beer because they're worried, you know, how it looks. You know, it looks like they're drinking too much or they want to limit their intake. But if you put the same volume as a pot of beer, you know, in Queensland that's 285 mils, 
um, walk around with a tray of pot glasses um, and the number of women that will say, oh, no, 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 thank you. You put exactly the same volume in a beautiful wine glass um, and it, because we're conditioned to wine glasses looking half full, um, a 285ml glass will only go to half the, the, the wine glass, which tend to be you know 500ml anyway, and they'll pick it up without hesitation and they will enjoy it. And when it's something like the Stone and Wood Pacific Ale, which I almost always start my tastings with because it just has all of the right cues, I almost have never had uh, a refusal and almost never had somebody to say, oh, gee, that's horrible. Um, and you know, it, it's just one of those things. And it's a little element um, of perception. It's a little element of the sensory nature of a, a nice glass um, and just the presentation of glass. And it just works so much. And that's, you know, so the, the pot glass, no, a nice glass of whatever description. Yes. Done. How's that for rent? That was very measured. You're learning well. <laughs> well, maybe that's my resolution for 2015. Um, you know, build build more bridges, and you know, just because you've got a box of matches in your hand, doesn't mean you need to strike them. That's right. And and, and look, let's let's also try to, to actually get these things up and uh, and out into the into the web sphere. Well, this one will be up before New Year's Eve, and well. But, Happy New Year's Eve. But, well, before we get to our uh, New Year's Eve greetings, uh, we'll just intro John Hall, uh, or John Hall. I think we had a bit of trouble with his name uh, during the interview. And, yeah, fascinating discussion about... I'd been mulling over, you know, if beer was invented today, what would it look like? Um, and I discussed a little bit about my thesis, but my view was that it wouldn't look like Corona. It would be something that was more interesting and engaging. But you'll get to hear what uh, John, and he actually did his research. I'd, I'd emailed him in advance of meeting him, and he'd contacted Stan Hieronymus, who wrote uh, what I think is the ultimate book on hops, um, to talk about it, and it's a fascinating discussion about that. So uh, without any further ado, we'll get into our chat with John Holt. Come on and dance the Merry Christmas polka. Let everyone be happy and gay. But we're still with uh, Pete Mitchum and uh, John Hall from uh, the United States, um, all about beer magazine. Now, John, the, the, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about when we set up this interview was something that I'd been just thinking about for a little while and uh, look, looking at beer has a, a very long history, possibly not as long as wine and some of the more easily fermented beverages, but it, it, it's been around for a long time and a culture has built up around it that has evolved and been added to and bolted on um, over thousands and thousands of years. Beer doesn't have the same romance of wine. Um, it doesn't have the sort of tradition of things like uh, Scotch whiskey. Um, and it doesn't have that sort of gravitas of uh, something like Scotch whiskey. But with the flavours that craft brewers are bringing to it, I've been pondering if beer was invented for the first time today, if some marketers sat down, they wanted to create something that had broad appeal, that really captivated and was saleable, and they called it beer, what would beer look like? And I, I, I sort of think that craft brewers have pretty much shown us what beer would be. If you want, Corona would not excite a market. It would not be um, what beer would look like. I've got this thesis that craft beer is what beer would look like, but the culture around it would be a little bit different. We wouldn't use giant shaker pints, for example. We wouldn't use, you know, we wouldn't be selling it in a bucket of beer. We would be looking at something that was maybe a little bit more flavour-based and less uh, uh, about volume. Um, what, what do you think? If, if beer was invented today, where do you, how do you think it would look? So I've, I've been giving this a lot of thought because I, I really find this to be a fascinating question, and it's one that we don't really challenge ourselves 
uh, to, to think about all that often. And so let, let's just assume that if, if it was created, that it would be a beverage of some kind. You know, so then what would the, the ingredients of that beverage be made up of? You know, what would beer be, at, 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 you know, in, ingredients-wise? And so if you wanted it, uh, you know, alcohol-wise, you'd have to have some sort of fermentable sugars and yeasts. So, uh, so you'd need, you know, some sort of fruit or some sort of uh, malt in order to do that. Oh. I was just going to say, yeah, and uh, I, I guess we already have that. That's wine, and so if wine was existed, so if, if we decided to sit down and we had all of this grain and we wanted to create a grain-based beverage, call it beer, um, would it... Would it be different to what we now regard as beer now? I think so. And, and this is what I think would be absolutely different. I don't think hops would come into play. At least not at first. And because when, when you think about it, what is hops used for? Its, it's main purpose on this planet is the production of beer. So if beer was created today, we'd have to jump in our time machine, and while there would be wild hops probably growing somewhere out in the wild, we would not have hop farms, and we would not have uh, production, and we would not have uh, the knowledge of its oils and aromatics. And so I don't think that if beer was created today, that at first uh, it would have uh, hops in it. I mean, that, that's, just my, that's just my general thought. And... Uh, yeah, I was talking to Stan Hieronymus, who's a journalist in the United States who wrote a fascinating book on hops about this. Uh, and, and I said, you know, this, this is what I'm thinking about answering this question. What do you think? And he agreed with me. And he says, but you have to figure that there are wild hops that are out there and that some, uh, after a while, some uh, industrious brewer would get around to adding it into a beer or adding it into a beverage. And would it take off at that point? Uh, you know, who knows? But given that with our beer scene, as we know it these days, that brewers will put anything into a beer, uh, you get to a point that uh, if beer is invented today, that, yeah, somebody might find some wild hops and throw it in there just to see what it does, add it to the boil, see what it does. That's actually fascinating. Cause I, 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 again, whilst I'd been sort of pondering it and thinking about it, I, I'd never actually considered, well, if, if you're using malt, it's not an automatic... You know, hops weren't used for the first thousand, a couple of thousand years, and it was only uh, you know a, a thousand years ago that, amidst all of the botanics that had been thrown in to balance the, the, the sweetness and provide a preservative effect, hops were found, and it was as a preservative, not as a flavouring element, is, is, as I understand that hops were were used for. So, um, beer would be looking a little bit different. So we've aut automatically taken this much further than than I thought. So. So taking that to the next level, we've, we've now decided, well, Matt, you've, you've broadly declared that Corona perhaps would not be. Corona is not <laughs> Would not be. What, what, but my argument is, because you're talking about, because that wouldn't excite a marketer. But the reality is that in the Australian beer market where the entire craft beer uh, segment is less than 2% and Corona is 5.6% as, as a single standalone brand, um, which it makes me vomit in my mouth just a little bit, even just to, to say those figures. But that tells me, damn what the marketers think, the accountants must love Corona. But that, see, see to me, Corona is the evolution of beer. It's a downward spiral of beer. And we, we've had this product that has gradually had more and more and more, and more taken out of. And if you're going to invent ice cream today... I don't think you would invent vanilla ice cream. Vanilla ice cream is the one that, you know, as, as, as you're looking for a bigger and bigger, we've got this great thing called ice cream. And rum and raisin ice cream, chocolate ice cream, coffee ice cream, all of these things are fantastic. 
but what happens when people don't like coffee? What happens when people don't like rum? Um, you need to take those flavours out. And vanilla is the downward spiral, and Corona is as well. You, you wouldn't start the market with... You, cheese wouldn't have started with craft cheese singles um, or cheese in a can. Beer doesn't start with Corona. It is the sort of reverse evolution of, of, of the product. But see, what I find interesting about the way that you pose this question of if marketers came up with the idea of beer today, I, I would say that if marketers came up with it, they would try to find uh, the, the product that appealed to the most amount of people. If a, if a small brewer, if somebody, you know, uh, some weird guy in his garage came up with the idea of beer and then shared it with somebody else who decided that this is what it would be, I, I think it would be that way. But I think that... Uh, from a marketing perspective, it, it is uh, profit-driven, and it's what kind of products can we put out onto the market uh, to appeal to the most amount of people for the most amount of money that that, that we can earn. So um, I think that that that's the that you know if if a marketer came up with the term beer today, I, I I think I would argue that we might have something like a Corona, and then that would be the base to grow from there. Then you'd get the artisans who would come in and say. Um, you know, well, Corona is fine, but let's see what happens if we put chocolate in this, or let's see what happens if we bourbon barrel age it, or let's see what happens if we, and you can go on from there. So I think that that would probably be the starting point, and then it would get better from there. I don't think we'd automatically start off with an ultra premium luxury product, uh, you know, like a bourbon barrel aged imperial stout. Um, you know, that, that, that's just my, you know, but it's a fun conversation to have. And it is fascinating, and I guess you know it blows my mind to even sort of think, well, beer wouldn't have hops in it. So what would we use to balance the sweetness? Because that's one of the things that makes beer what it is. Is it's the balance between the sweetness and the you know the sweet and sour, but in this case, it's the sweet and the bitter. Um, you know, would we make a chocolate? Would beer have chocolate in it? So the cocoa providing the bitterness, or would beer have coffee in it to provide the bitterness? And it's yeah, it's fascinating to think about. The one thing that I do think about is that we wouldn't be serving beer. No one would sit down and create a, a product that automatically alienates 50% of the population. Um, and by that I mean women, um, who tend to, to look more for flavour and less for bitterness. And I, um, I, I explain it this way, that beer has, the, has, has all of these subtle um, you know, sexisms uh, about it um, and, and not just the overt sexisms of Budweiser commercials or in our case Forex Gold commercials that just sort of uh, you know, women in bikinis but I don't know anyone uh, male or female that like their first sip of beer because it's bitter and doesn't have you know, most mainstream beers that we, we first tried um, are bitter without much flavour and it's an acquired taste and in a masculine world uh, where blokes drink beer, women drink coolers or something like that you're expected to drink beer so there's almost a, a, a cultural male imperative to drink beer and acquire the taste um, and it's only now that we, we're seeing craft beer that has a lot of flavor that that's when women are deciding hey you know th there is actually flavor in this that I like and I love the uh, the, the, the beer and food pairing and and that's bringing 50% of the, the market in if you stripped away if you were creating a product that was going to appeal to everybody, you would have flavour and not just the, uh, the the bitterness it had to be used to. But you probably also wouldn't serve it um, in 
giant pint glasses that um, you know, women, for example, um, with smaller hands. And I, we're walking through a minefield. I know that. I know that. It's not a qualitative thing, but women have smaller hands. <laughs> and you guys are tiptoeing away from... This is no disrespect to you guys. I'm just glad my wife doesn't listen to your show. Um. <laughs> Does she have big hands? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my wife drinks a lot of beer, um, and she drinks beer with a lot of flavor um, to it. But that, and, and, and that's the point, that, that women have tended to shy away from the, just the naked bitterness of beer, but as soon as you give them something that's got genuine flavor, there seems to be no barrier to it. You know, this, this just goes into a larger conversation, though. If we're talking about how larger brewers don't necessarily market to women because of the bikini babe ads and, and all of that other stuff, they are paying attention to women in the marketplace these days. And in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of the larger brewers buy or create smaller niche specialty brands uh, that are appealing to women. Uh, so there, there's a brand in the U.S. called Blue Moon, uh, owned by Miller Coors. And they have these really nice ads. Uh, it's a, a television advertisements where it's 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 a uh, it's almost like a human painting. So um, uh, it's all done in watercolor and and ink and pen, and it, it, it's very well done. And at the end, it says "artfully crafted." That's their tagline. And every time that TV commercial uh, finishes, my wife says, "I that makes me want to have one of those beers." And that's that's it right there. So you know, it's not necessarily the craft segment. Uh, it's you know they're, they're, the, the 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 ones that are paying attention to um, to all beer drinkers, not just men or women, but all beer drinkers and all potential beer drinkers. I think are going to be the ones that uh, continue. Yeah. In that vein, John, and yeah. we're we're talking about um, that the hypothetical of beer being invented today, and we have to accept that you know when beer was invented, there was no social media, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no advertising, no mass marketing. And in, so in, in, in the respect of, um, and I think, uh, was it either Garrett Oliver or maybe Sam Calagione, I think, coined, uh, sort of described it as, you know, stop drinking what your television tells you you should be drinking and, and, and listen to your, your, your palate. Today, would, uh, if, if beer was invented today, would it be not necessarily um, the product itself, but would it be, like you say, the Blue Moon marketing? Because I know well, I mean, Matt and I recently had some Blue Moon sent to us for, um, for tasting, you know, as, as, as media sort of people. And I'd had it in the States, and I'd had, I think, Shock Top is the AB InBev version, a, a similar kind of, you know, sort of, I guess faux craft or, or, or trickery or, you know, clever marketing or however you want to describe it. So if beer was invented today, would there actually be this kind of, um, I guess, a social media or almost like a viral marketing campaign to get people, in, you know, to get the buzz and then the product would come out? And if so, would it almost be, not bullshit, but would it be, you know, I, I call shenanigans. Like, does, would, would there be... And uh, I guess an underlying, oh, this is this is going to be really funky and really interesting, but then it turns out to be a watered-down version of cool and funky. I, I, I think it would be advertising, you know, and if advertising is done well, it makes people want to buy a product. Whether or not the product is good or the product is, uh, uh, yeah, that's, it, it, you're right, it's almost irrelevant. If the marketing is good, people will buy it and they'll make a lot of money and if after a while they're not making as much money well then they stop 
advertising that product and then they come up with a new product and they move to the next one. So, um, yeah, I mean, that would be a very curious thing to see if beer is created today. I, I, the marketing would be a very huge part of it. Because um, again, if we're, if we're coming from uh, the standpoint of if marketers came up with this, well, that's a money-driven business. It's going to be a company where it's a money-driven business, so they're going to want to get as much out of it as they possibly can. Okay, if we can just shift away from the if beer was created today then, um, and move towards if you could change one thing about beer, what would it be? Um, you know, assuming we've had the eight, 10,000 years of beer evolution, but there was an aspect of beer that you don't like, um, what would you change? For me, it would be the perception of beer as a weapon of mass consumption, that the best beer is something you can drink by the six pack, purely for refreshment, you serve it in a giant glass. I would love to see um, two or three sitting around a table with one bottle of beer, um, sharing it in three glasses, tasting it, moving on to the next one. So it's not just one beer all night. We have a, a, a progression of um, you know, like a 330 mil bottle or a, 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 I'm not sure what that is in ounces, John. But yeah, and, and it would be much more like the tapas approach to eating for, for beer. So that would be what I would change. I have no, I see, oh, you're lucky. You got to sit this one out. Um, I don't know what, what I would change. I mean, there, there's, there's a couple of different things that come to mind about the beverage itself. Uh, I, I think I would agree with, with, with marketing it or having it viewed as something as solely a tool to become intoxicated. I think that that needs to change. Uh, and that's something that, that's a, yeah, that's something that I would like to, to see, see that change as well. But again, you know, we're already seeing that with the smaller brewers as well these days, where it really is about the flavor, it's about sipping. Um, you know, if, if, if you get a little bit of a buzz on, well, that's a happy accident and don't do anything stupid. Um, you know, don't go driving, don't go do anything like that. But but if you, if you have a little bit, um, you know, that, that's an okay thing, but don't have, you know, one more after that or don't have 10 more after that. And I think that that's the culture uh, that we've seen and I'd like to see that change. He says, as we sit above the crowd at a beer festival, you know, just don't get the buzz on, but don't go beyond that. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> but incidentally, and, and I can put my hand on my heart and say without any sort of word of a lie that we haven't staggered out of, that's just our approach. And we, we had a bit of a chat off air um, that beer festivals aren't where we would choose to spend our time if it's not work as, as much as anyone sitting at home might go, yeah, sure. I've had worse jobs, but it is still work. And having to sit here, I, I, I want to stay sober so I can continue to work and continue to have, have the conversations that we're having now. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, in this job, we travel a lot, we meet a lot of people, you drink a lot of beer. Um, there, there's something that's frustrating if you go overboard uh, and, and we all have, and I have certainly, um, uh, you know, losing productivity the next day uh, through a hangover. Hangovers suck. I mean, the, the older I get, you know, it, it's just the, the more, or, you know, the less and less I enjoy them and the harder and harder it is to recover from them. It's no longer a badge of honor. It's more like, as you know, maybe it's when you were a kid. Now it's like, wow, I was kind of an ass last night. And, uh, and that's the other part of it as well is that uh, for us as professionals, which I know people always chuckle when we say we're beer professionals. Um, you know, you don't want to be perceived as the drunk guy. You don't want to be the drunk guy. Um, and I think that it's easy for a lot of people to see us uh, that way of like, oh, wow, you have a cool job. You must be drunk all the time. It's like, no, 
because I still have to write a story and I still have to like go to the next place and interview somebody coherently and pay attention. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. It's I don't know if we're even on topic anymore, but that's something I wanted to get off my chest. John, beer is a conversation. We're always on topic. Now, but and, and what you were describing isn't a professional beer writer. You were describing Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> you know that poor dog. That poor, poor dog, you know, he just wanted to take a nap in like a sunspot in the middle of the afternoon and all they do is put a Hawaiian shirt on him and, you know, funnel beer down his weirdly shaped nose. You know, that poor guy, that poor, poor guy, animal cruelty. Plus they made him drink like Bud Ice or something, right? You know, it's, uh, yeah. (laughs) The SPCA should have been been right onto that much, much earlier. So, uh, anything you want to say, Prof? Anything you, we, we have the, uh, the editor of uh, the, the world's leading beer magazine. We established that right at the start. What would you like to ask him? Well, even just on that last topic, um, it's not necessarily something that I would want to change about beer, but something, I guess maybe like you talked about, the perception. I think if, if there was one thing that I could, um, I guess, influence, it would be getting people to consider this product in the same way that they consider milk. And not long life tetra pack, you know, on the shelf milk, but um, keep it fresh, like drink it, drink it fresh, keep it cool, keep it dark. And I know that probably, uh, I guess, alienates a lot of the, the brewers who do want to send their beer into, into, into wider markets. Um, and, and it does, it, it kind of goes against that grain. But I think if we use that as a starting point, then I think we change the perception for, I guess, the, the mass consumption beer drinkers to say, okay, so a clear glass bottle, that should be a warning, not a, not a beacon. Uh, and I, I think that that's the one thing that, that I guess I'd, I'd change. I agree with that, yeah. I, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about, John, is uh, one of the things I always read in all about Mir Magazine is the ever-increasing number of craft breweries. You know, there, there's, what, 2,500 there now, 3,000 and 1,000 in planning that, that, that we know about. What is the future of craft beer? And, and uh, look, we're going to have a whole podcast on the the craft beer bubble. But um, what do you think is the future of craft beer? Will they all survive, or will we see an, a hyper local, maybe a, a, a regional um, aggregation, and then it's still a couple of national players with that have been added to by the um, Sam Adams and the, the Sierra Nevadas? Or what, what, what's your um, tea leaf reading of uh, the, the the craft beer market? This, this is the fun part of the job now where, you know, it used to be as a journalist, it's just you deal with facts. And now as editor, you, you deal with theories, which is very strange. Um, I think the first thing that we all have to recognize is that, yes, with 3,000 plus breweries in the U.S. and 1,000 more on planning, there are going to be some that close. That doesn't necessarily mean that the trend of beer is coming to an end. It just means that in business... Sometimes businesses close. So we can't take into account of like, oh my gosh, you know, and I don't think, you know, if somebody closed, it's the sign of the next beer apocalypse. I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, and I also don't think that we're going to see the mass closures that we once did. Um, what I do think that we will see is that uh, the larger uh, uh, craft breweries will become larger and they will continue to grow. Uh, and they will continue to bring new people into the fold. They will be, uh, for the new generation of beer drinkers, um, the stalwarts, the old guys, the big guys, as it were. Um, And we will see a lot of hyper-local. And I love that. I think that that's really cool. I want to be able 
you know, where I live in uh, in New Jersey in the States, just outside of Manhattan, uh, I live in a town or a city of about 200,000 people, and we don't have a brewery yet. And that bothers me to no end that we don't have a brewery yet. We have breweries in Manhattan, and we have breweries in the suburbs, and I, I can. it's not hard for me to get local beer. But I would love to be able to walk down the street and into a brewery and get good, fresh local beer. And every time that I travel, if I'm in a new town, I always find the, the closest brewery if I can, and I go and I drink there. And other people do that as well. But it's not just a tourist thing. It, they're, they're good stewards of the community, and they're good... Um, uh, uh, champions of small business and, and good, well-made products. And so if a brewery makes stuff well uh, and stays local and can make enough money to support themselves and their employees and, and, and grow their business a little bit, I think that that's the model that I would like to see and that we will see uh, happening in the next couple of years. It'll be a trend towards local. It won't be, oh, I'm going to open up a brewery and I want to be in 50 states by the end of two years. No, I, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to be in my town and maybe the next town over, and that's okay by me. And that's something that is a philosophical change for a lot of brewers these days, uh, but one that if, if they can embrace that and hold on to it tightly, um, I think it's going to do really well for them in the long run. So that, that's what I think we're going to see is hyper-local. I don't think we're going to see a lot of breweries shut down because of uh, a losing or, or, or failing beer trend. Uh, I think that you know we'll, we'll, we will see the trend towards local. We'll see the trend towards session beers um, uh, in the hopefully four percent or less range is uh, how I would like to see them uh, in the next couple of years. We'll see more restaurants um, add brewing systems to their uh, uh, to their, uh, uh, their their what's the word that I'm thinking of their their establishments. And then finally, um, I think we'll see a lot more canning as well. Uh, uh, breweries are going to embrace canning uh, even more as a packaging. So, I'm always conscious of being the the naysayer or the negative guy, and, and I love beer, and I want to. And, and the, the the thing for me is that I'm trying to work out in my head how to make craft beer stay around because that, I love beer, and that, and that's what I got into it. But I just heard you describe your hyper local, and I just think back to, for example, reading about uh, Anheuser Busch. Um, there was a great biography about the, the, the five generations of uh, the, the, the Bush family and how they were one of a local German brewers and they uh, got better at sh shipping their beer to the next city. We've, we've completed this giant mega cycle where we've come back to hyper-local and that yet as, as one brewery grow, one hyper-local brewery grows a little bit bigger, they can sell their beer cheaper and they can move their beer efficiently to the next town at a cheaper price and, and and put that next brewery's town out of business because they were able to sell it cheaper. And you know, yes, at the moment we're all excited about local produce and all of those sorts of things, but isn't that just part of the cycle? And we are just going to see a, a growth of a whole new range of beer barons? I, I, and I think we are seeing a, a whole new range of the beer barons in the U.S. right now. Um, and barons is such a, a, a weird uh, term to use, but... Ken Grossman from Sierra Nevada, Jim Cook from Boston Beer, Kim Jordan, and, and the rest of the folks at uh, uh, New Belgium, and more and more and more, Tony McGee at Lagunitas. I mean, they, they, these are very large companies. Uh, these people are worth many, many millions of dollars. Uh, Forbes now says uh, that Jim Cook is probably worth a billion dollars. Um, I mean, with a B. And that is, that, is, that is big money right there. That is big money right there. Um, but, you know, so... so yeah, the, the, the big guys will get bigger. And yes, it is. Uh, it, it, if it is in your business plan saying we want X percent of growth every year, that we want this, this, and this, 
that's great. But I think that a lot of the brewers that are coming into it these days say, listen, if I can you know, be on tap at uh, 50 pubs in my town uh, or 50 pubs within a 20-minute radius where I know everybody who's serving my beer and I can make money and it's fresh, that's good enough for me. And that's their business model. And then if they pass on the business, uh, the business to, for now, for now. And, and that's, but, but again, you can never predict like how some people are gonna you know, react. And if they do become really popular and investment comes by and people say, well, hey, we wanna give you a $10 million investment to grow beer, maybe you reevaluate uh, you know, your stance or maybe, and I've heard from brewers who have done this, they said, no thanks, we're happy with where we are. And then that person takes his money and goes someplace else to another brewery. That brewery grows. Maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. Um, you know, it, it, so it, it's, there's no right or wrong answer to it. It really is just a brewer's philosophy and then seeing if they stay true to that. And, yeah, and again, don't, don't be the nice side, but you, that, that, that's the thing you sort of hear uh, everyone says, and it, it, it's fascinating to see as the Sam Calagiones and the, uh, you know, the, the, the big brewers who 10 years ago, and, and I guess... You, you need to have a little bit of historical perspective um, on, on the industry and, and have, having gone back and seen what these people said 10 years ago when they were first started and they, we're small, we're proud, you know, we're, we're fighting the big guys. As they become big, their song changes a little bit and they start complaining about these small, hyper-local Pico brewers that are taking taps off them who are making vanity beers and aren't uh, in, in, interested in uh, building a, a long-term business. And they're taking, we, we've invested in stainless steel. These guys are just home brewers in their garage and you know, if there's a thousand Pico brewers, they're taking a thousand taps off us. And it's just interesting to how the dialogue changes as you grow. And uh, also, as, as we're going to see the end of a generation of brewers. So if I own a brewery um, that I've created in my 30s, build it for 15 years, and I'm starting to think about retirement. I don't, maybe my kids don't want to follow in. What's the outcome? So we are still so early in. We're in a nascent in industry, and it's when we start seeing generational change and... You know, the, the um, adventurers of the craft beer market start to reach seniority and then start thinking about exiting. I, I think that's when we're going to start to see a, a real pressure on, on, on some of this. We're all in it because we love beer. We, we, we love what we do. We're a brotherhood of brewers. You know, the thing that I'll say is if, if, if the, the larger brewers are worried about the smaller brewers taking their taps or, you know, the bigger craft brewers are getting nervous about the home brewer that opened up and, and are taking the taps, it's not, by the way, the smaller brewers that are taking the taps. It's the consumers. And it's the consumer demand saying, I choose this beer over this beer. And if a brewery's been around for 20 years and they're now starting to get eclipsed in a certain market by a smaller local brewery or smaller brewery from someplace else, that larger brewery really needs to sit and take stock of, well, why is our beer not selling as much these days? Or how come people choose this beer over, over that beer? And this is when it becomes a business and they have to take a hard look at their numbers and take a hard look at themselves. It's like, well, when we were doing 100,000 barrels, uh, you know, we were doing this with our IPA, but now we're making 250,000 barrels and we've tweaked our recipe a little bit and, you know, it still tastes good, but it's a little bit different. Maybe the consumers have noticed that, you know, maybe you didn't think that the consumers would. So that's that's just one uh, thought on that. Yeah, and we're seeing the first generation of, of the brewers in the U.S. Uh, age out, uh, retire. Um, some are selling to larger companies. Uh, some are going employee-owned. 
uh, selling the company to the employees, which was very cool. Some are passing it on to the next generation. Um, the, the next five years for that, especially, are going to be very transformative. And who's to say that when, uh, you know, what any of the new owners will do? Um, if, if somebody founds a brewery, that is their passion. That is their baby, so to speak. Um, nobody else is ever, ever going to feel the same way about that business as the founder uh, themselves, especially if it's grown. So, you know, we might see breweries change direction or change ethos under a new generation. And even though it's, it's you know, somebody's kid, uh, the kid might feel a different way. And now if the kid's in charge, well, who's to stop the kid from, from doing something different or selling? Or So uh, th the next five years on that are going to be very transformative. And, uh, you know, all of those are going to be very personal decisions by a lot of those brewers. And I'm not privy to those conversations. So, uh, uh, but it's going to be fun to watch. John, you've been incredibly generous with your time, given how busy, you've been incredibly busy uh, in your time in Wellington. Thank you so much for, uh, and, and being so forthright uh, and honest. Hopefully it's been an interesting discussion for you to have as well. Um, as, as we do say at Australian Brewers News, beer is a conversation, and I tell you, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Pete Mitchum, thank you for joining us. John Hall uh, from All About Beer magazine. Just very, very quickly, um, those of us in the Southern Hemisphere can actually subscribe to All About Beer magazine? Yes, you can. Go to allaboutbeer.com and click on the subscription. And uh, uh, yes, subscribe, sign up. And if you have any problems, you can just contact me through the website personally, and I'll, I'll make sure that the subscription people take care of you. And can't recommend it enough. It is one of the few magazines that I go out of my uh, way to read every uh, month that it comes out, although I tend to get it six or eight weeks after the, the month. But, you know, fortunately... It's a five or six year cycle, beer doesn't change too much. But John, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us. Now every heart will start to tingle when sleigh bells jingle. On Prof, there we go. Great to, uh, it was great to re-listen to that. Good to re-listen. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And, uh, and it just, it's just a, the nicest bloke. And like you say, it's probably nothing to do with the fact that he's, you know, like a, a non-beer journalist, um, by profession, but he certainly does bring uh, some colour and oomph and um, something I think that, that the beer, some beer writers I think miss. Yep, and well, it's a certain gravitas. gravitas. Uh, he's balanced, he's measured, he knows how to write, but he's very passionate about beer at the same time. So, you know, it's a really nice uh, thing. So it was great to uh, chat to John. I've been following him on uh, Facebook and he's in Belgium at the moment, so hopefully there'll be some... Uh, Good stuff uh, coming out of that. He'll be making some interesting observations. Uh, jump on the All About Beer website. I often share um, uh, posts uh, on, on their Facebook posts. They post a lot of their articles, um, and I often share those on Brews News because it is such good quality content. Um, I highly recommend All About Beer magazine. But uh, anyway, Prof, great to uh, you know we, we haven't been all that regular. We haven't posted all that often this year, but. Uh, the Bruce News continues to go from strength to strength. I believe had over half a million page impressions this year. Um, you know, phenomenal, uh, the, the little site that could. We've got some interesting and uh, potentially exciting news for the site in early in 2015, so stay tuned for that, listeners. Um, but, you know, Pete, more than anything, it's just always good to uh, catch up with you and uh, it's you know, my pleasure to, to work with you in the many different ways that we do. So, uh you know, Merry Christmas uh, to you, belated Merry Christmas, uh, Happy New Year, and I look forward to working with you in uh, 2015. Back at you, big fella. And our listeners. Thanks, listeners. To, to you as well, thank you for all of your you know, kind support, listening, 
and uh, you know for, for making the beer space such an interesting one to inhabit. That sounds like, that sounds like a good uh, New Year's resolution. That's okay. I can I can hear the let's, uh, chicken. Let's drink I can that. hear the chicken dance firing up in the background. So uh, <laughs> actually, it's a good tune for. Uh, New Year's Eve so uh, hopefully you'll be listening to us uh, as you drink your beer on New Year's Eve listeners but uh, all the best there's a garden what a garden only happy faces bloom there and there's never And we're out.